0: It's time for Nashville Sounds baseball. Franklin Barreto hits a two-run homer. Matt Chapman has done it again with the glove. Garneau lines a base hits a left. Sounds win! An amazing play by Joey Wendell. It's over! The Sounds have done it! The Nashville Sounds are division champions! What a finish at first Tennessee Park! I am Welcome to Rounding Third, the official podcast of the Nashville Sounds. On the field, off the field, Rounding Third takes you inside Nashville Sounds baseball. Here's your host, Jeff Hemm. Welcome back to another edition of Rounding Third, the Nashville Sounds podcast. It's Jeff Hem back with you once again, and today we come to you from El Paso, Texas, as the Sounds are wrapping up a three-game series in El Paso in the middle of a seven-game road trip where they'll head to Albuquerque, New Mexico next. Our guest on the podcast today is Sounds hitting coach Eric Martins, who's got an interesting background He played professionally for 11 seasons with the Oakland A's, among other teams, and he played independent league ball, as he'll tell us he played internationally. And then shortly after his playing career, he worked for a year as a mailman, trying to figure out his long-term future and wanting to get back into baseball. He took advantage of a scouting opportunity with the A's and scouted for them for several years, before becoming a hitting coach at AA Midland in 2015. And now he's in his third season with the Sounds as hitting coach, his fourth overall coaching year with the Athletics after those several years as a scout when he signed guys like Matt Chapman and Daniel Robertson, who was drafted by the A's and later traded to Tampa in the Ben Zobras deal a few years ago. So Martins has the interesting background of playing, scouting, and now coaching, and he'll tell us how they're all still sort of intertwined in what he does day-to-day as the Sounds hitting coach. We'll learn a little bit more about him. We'll learn a little bit more about the scouting world, which always fascinates me, and he'll talk a little bit more about his current days as a hitting coach and also his favorite spots around the Pacific Coast League, including some spots where he played back in the day that are no longer in the league. So here is another edition of the Nashville Sounds podcast, Rounding Third, with Sound's hitting coach, Eric Martins. All right, Eric, thank you for your time and joining us here on the Rounding Third podcast, a new adventure for us where we get to talk more about you and your career than some of the things we talk about in the, in the times you'll join me for pregame show interviews over the course of the season. And I want to start back in... 1994 when a young Eric Martins is drafted in the 17th round out of Long Beach State. You went through scouting and you are now a longtime coach here in pro ball. So you know the draft from a lot of different perspectives. What do you remember about going through it as a player?
1: It was crazy. I mean quite honestly it was I signed as a senior. Um, I was drafted my junior year but I didn't sign and so uh You know, it was weird just for the fact how the draft is now compared to my day. It seems like so long ago, which I guess it is. Um, You know, I talked to a lot of scouts, filled out the information, but maybe had a couple conversations with a couple different scouts, and that was really it. And it's just funny how the draft worked last year, how they let you know was I got the phone call from the scout, said, hey, we drafted you. And then that same day, I got a like a telegram saying that the A's <laughs> had drafted me and there was no watching it on TV or knowing who was getting picked where so it was pretty exciting though. I was drafted by uh, Ed Crosby, who's actually Bobby Crosby's uh, father, so it was a uh, it was a good thing.
0: Now I know you are a very proud Long Beach State alum. You will talk about the dirt bags <laughs> with anybody, and if I've got the history right, the dirt bags came along as a term in 1989. Then you go to Long Beach State a few years later. So how much did that 89 College World Series Long Beach State team affect your wanting to play there?
1: Oh, that was all I wanted to do. I mean, that's all I wanted to play for. I had offers to go different places, and I had actually uh, committed to go to UCLA out of high school, but ended up at Long Beach. and was the best place for me. I mean, there were a bunch of I mean, like you said, the dirt bags, the terminology came because we had this little side field on the back of our our campus where if if our coach thought we weren't working hard, he'd send us back and it was like a softball little league field where he'd have us go back there and take ground balls and there was rocks and grass and and <laughs> glass all over the place and the coach would make us dive and we come back and be dirty and grindy and look like a bunch of dirt bags and that's kind of how it stuck. So that's the kind of you know, mantra that they wanted to have at Long Beach. You know, grindy, gritty players that played hard and got dirty and were bloody and all kinds of stuff, so it was fun.
0: You played 11 years professionally. You got to AAA. You came up with the A's and... some independently ball at the end of your career what are some of your memories as a player i guess now that you sort of come full circle and you're trying to help other guys get to the big leagues do you draw from your experiences quite often when you're thinking about your own playing days no absolutely
1: i mean i I had a lot of great coaches when i was here and and learned a lot from them uh, and watching a lot of guys like i played with miguel tejada eric chavez i mean basically everybody that was oakland in 2000 2001 were my teammates mark bellhorn barry zito I mean just to name a few so just being able to play with those guys and be alongside those guys and and you know in the grind with them and seeing what worked for them and l- a lot of the information that I got from some of the coaches picking here a little bit of their brain and and kind of bring it into my own has helped a lot you know the scouting helped a lot and being able just to evaluate and help these guys and it's it's kind of been it's it's been full circle you know last few years I played out of the country and so being able to take that experience and guys that are kind of at the end of their career and thinking about hanging them out, there's a lot of baseball left to be played. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's n- no reason why you should just give up your dream so early.
0: Yeah, describe what you went through trying to weigh, when do I want to stop playing? How much longer do I think I can go? What's my future going to be like after I stop playing? Those are not easy decisions.
1: No, they're not. They're not, you know, and you know, I played a long time, was fortunate enough to – to play with the A's for so long, and actually had signed with um, with Texas to as a six-year free agent, but decided to actually go out of the country, um, which was great. You know, I had a surgery in between those times, which was one of the toughest parts for me because just going through that rehab and not having a team to sign with was was tough. So I played some independent ball in Long Beach and had other options to go different places, but you know your time you know when your time is I played as long as I wanted to it was never released and was never told I couldn't play anymore and it, time came to where I was like you know what I, I've done this I gave it a good shot I traveled the world you know made a little bit of money and now it's time to get forward with my life and never knew that I'd be here right now but it kind of was in the back of my mind
0: you started scouting in 07 did you go right into it from your playing days or was there a gap in there where you were trying to kind of Think long term. No, there was a gap. It was actually
1: a year gap of in between playing and and sc- actually a year and a half. And it's it's funny because when I stopped playing, I actually was a mailman for a year and a half. And uh, I remember being on a route, and I was close to having my own route, sitting up at top of the hill because I didn't want to go back to the office <laughs> early. So they'd send me out, and I get a call from one of our longtime scouts who actually. Uh, I knew for a while and asked me if I'd be interested first in coaching. And I was like, "Ah, I just got done. I don't know if I wanted to do that. And he's like, well, there might be something with scouting. You know, Eric Kubota may give you a call in a couple days. And Eric actually called me two hours later. And we had a conversation. He happened to be in Southern California that day. And I met him the next day and basically offered me the job on the spot. So you know it was a no-brainer for me i mean yeah i took the 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 mailman job because it was a government job and it was just something to do and mm-hmm. and you know have some stability while i figured out the next step and this kind of came right away which was i was very
0: fortunate i'm fascinated by the scouting world i know i've talked to you a lot about it over the years in our pregame chats and uh, the matt chapman story is well documented so we could do a whole podcast on scouting but your first experiences as a scout compared to what maybe as a player you thought scouts did, and there are a lot of layers of scouting, amateur, professional, cross-checkers, so just kind of generally speaking, was it what you thought it would be having observed scouts as a player?
1: Uh, No, you know, it was, um, at the beginning it was tough because I didn't have a database, you know, as you scout and you see players get drafted and then you follow their careers, and you kind of look back to how you like them and what they've become, it kind of helps you become a better scout. At the beginning, I remember my first my first year scouting, they handed me a radar gun, they gave me a laptop, they gave me, they said, here you go, go get them. And I was just like, holy cow, okay. So I remember going to my first game as a scout and it was a JC game and I liked everybody on the field. <laughs> I was like, oh, this guy can play, this guy's got a chance. And and all of a sudden I had some friends that had been scouting. and they kind of talked to me a little bit and, and you know the Oakland was great they had Rick Magnante who would come down and kind of mentor me and you know our Scotty kid and those guys would help me out and kind of had to fine-tune what makes a, a professional baseball player and what we're actually looking for I mean you don't want to take any kids dreams but at the end of the day it's what's best for the organization and like I said that first year I went out and I loved everybody I must have written a hundred reports and was like I need this guy I want this guy and As you look and start building databases, you kind of see, okay, maybe maybe I was a little overzealous on this guy and this guy's not ready for pro ball or, you know, he's a one and done guy. So you kind of had to, you know, drop down the scales a little bit and really hone in on the guys that had the, the, the talent to be future big leaguers.
0: The honesty of the scouting world is what I think is just so interesting. You kind of described it there. I mean, now you put up charts on the wall for the sounds to read about that night's pitcher. And there's always a little description paragraph, and sometimes those words can be fairly harsh. Hey, this guy we you know, projects to be an end of the rotation guy or a fringe major leaguer, and I'm thinking if I'm a player and I'm reading that, it's like, man, what are they writing about me?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely, it's it's a cruel world, man. I mean, it really is. And you know, quite honestly, for me as a scout, I wanted to like everybody, and I went in with the impression that I wanted to like every kid, and. And give him his dream, you know, and to crush that dream is tough. So I mean words can be harsh and if those guys were to look at some of these, these scouting reports it may break their you know, it may hurt their feelings a little bit, but you you have to have conviction. I mean, especially in your area when, when you're trying to sell the Oakland A's on we need to draft this guy and you gotta be honest with certain guys and, and and it comes on the other side as well. Why don't you like this guy? And you have to give the description why you don't think, you know, he's a good Fit for the Oakland A's, so it's one of those things. I mean, it, it was it was tough. I wanted to like everybody. I gave everybody a fair chance, and for me to be able to be like, you know what, I don't think this guy has a chance, was tough.
0: The amateur draft was just completed recently. What is the draft room like on draft day for an organization? First of all, are all the scouts in there? Are there some guys that don't attend in the draft room?
1: Well, we're Oakland A's is one of the. I don't know how many teams do it, but I know not every team does it. We might be one of the few teams that actually invites all their scouts in. So. We'll come in a few days before the draft, maybe four days before the draft, and we actually have a chance to talk about every single player that we have turned in as an area scout. So we're talking 70 guys per scout, maybe less, a little bit less, a little bit more. So those those meetings become grindy. And I know for sure that the right-handed pitcher day is one that all of us scouts dread because <laughs> it's trying to sell a guy that sounds like – 500 other guys across the country yeah. so I mean but it's a great experience you know there's there's good there's good camaraderie in there and you get to see all the scouts that have grinded all year and I'm glad that the, the A's allow us to do that and being able to go in there and talk about your player you, you got to have the conviction and you got to sell them I mean yeah. you have Billy Bean in there you have David Forrest not you know including Eric Kubota and all the scouts that are in there and if they feel you're passionate about a certain guy you know you're hoping that there's an opportunity that you can get this guy.
0: A great article in The Athletic, and you were quoted in there several times, the Matt Chapman story where you knew Chappie almost from the day he was born, it seems like, and I had a long history, and it comes to draft day, and there were some higher-ups that were leery of the pick, and it sounded like from some of the quotes from Billy Bean and others, it was you and your colleagues who really who really sold it. Is that accurate? It's close. I don't think they were leery. I think they were just more. There were
1: question marks. They, there was question marks about him. I mean, the defense was, was a plus. The arm was a no-brainer. You know, the hit ability and, and the, the home runs, they weren't sure about the power. And so it was, you know, I had to really talk to him and, and let him know that, hey, you know, he's one of those guys that is going to play the game the way you want him to play. And he was a college guy that, you know, went to Fullerton and that played a lot of small ball. So he was asked to hit and run, asked to hit behind runners and, and stuff like that. So I was fortunate enough to have, like I said, the relationship with them that once he lost in the regionals, and, and not being able to attend our scout or, or, or pre-draft workout, I was able to call his dad. And his dad, first thing he said when I called was, we'll be on a plane tomorrow. So fortunate for that relationship because when he came to the Coliseum, he put it on an absolute show and kind of just the doubters were just like, never mind, we were wrong.
0: <laughs> He's a unique situation because you later would coach him and you knew him so well. But to me, it's a good example of what a scout has to deal with. You want to get to know the player. You want to you know, know his quote-unquote makeup. But then if you really like a guy personally, you still have to sort of separate what kind of ball player can he be. The, the makeup plays a role, but if you really like a guy, that maybe not is enough to just draft him. No,
1: 100%. I mean, makeup for me is it was one of the most important things. I mean, this guy's got to be able to go out and represent you and the organization on, on great terms. You don't want a guy who's had problems in the past and then they come back up. I mean, you have to do your homework, whether it's good or bad, and, and, and kind of... Listen while you're watching these guys. Listen in the stands. I mean, I can hear I can hear what's going on in the stands. And I'll go to a high school game and watch a player, and you can sit in the student section and hear these kids say, oh, this guy was doing this and this and that. So, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. Coaches' job are to, are to protect their players and, and, and give them the opportunity. But fortunately for me, I had a lot of relationships with a lot of the, the coaches in Southern California, so they gave me the real scoop on these guys. But, I mean, as far as makeup goes, that was the most important thing for me. You can have the best talent in the world, but if your makeup was questionable,
0: with me I probably wouldn't want you. You finished as a scout in 2014 you become a hitting coach at double-a midland and you've now been with the sounds for a few years what do you miss about scouting what do you not miss about the life of a scout?
1: Ah uh, wow that's a tough question I mean as far as scouting I just love getting out there and evaluating talent and watching players you know I was with a nice uh, tight tight group of guys down in Southern California that became really good friends and you know being able to to draft those players and and be able to watch and and give a kid his dream. I think yeah. that's really the the most important thing. What I miss what I don't miss about it is just, it's just grindy days. I mean, you're you're watching three, four day, four games a day. You know, fortunately for me in Southern California, I didn't have to cross through many states to go to different places to watch games, but I mean, it it was a grindy day. you're you're up and, and watching a high school game, maybe a jC game and finishing off at a d one game at night and mm-hmm. And then all the reports that you had to write and getting all the medical information and all the information for the front office. I mean, I don't miss that part.
0: Did you, become a, did you request to try to be a hitting coach? Did you sort of fall into the position? How did it come about where you left scouting and became a hitting coach? No, I, I didn't request
1: to leave. It was one of those things where I, I would do instructional league every year. Um, and Lip, who's our farm director, always told me, he's like, you're going to be a good coach one of these days. And I was like, ah, we'll see. And so it was, happened to be the double-A year in 2015. I had just done instructional league, signed my two-year deal to scout, go back to scouting. He calls me in the off-season and says, hey, Eric, he's like, I need you. I need you on the field. And that was the year that we were having Healy, Pinder, Olsen, um, those guys go to Midland that year, and Daniel Robertson before we traded them. And so it was their, our next core of guys that he didn't want anybody else. He knew I had a good relationship with those guys. i had worked with them in, in instructional league and stuff like that. So he basically asked me if, I would consider, and I actually at that point I was like, you know what, maybe it is time for a change. Nothing against scouting, and nothing against the scouting department. But maybe I wanted to do something a little bit different, build up that resume a little bit of having coached and scouted, and and so I I talked to uh, my significant other at the time, which is now my wife, and we we talked about it a little bit, and I went ahead and did it, and so I had to call the the scouting department and ask if it was okay, and they
0: were all aboard with it, so here I am. How much of your world is still, in a sense, scouting? I mean, it's you're still observing the game and looking for things, but maybe it's a little bit more of a, you know, one-on-one and mechanical at times too. Oh, uh, I'm constantly scouting here.
1: I'm scouting for a big league club when we're playing, you know, Tacoma or Salt Lake City that's in the division or in the American League, where i I have to write up the pitchers so they have a scouting report, maybe that they don't have on this guy, and then also I'm still writing reports on guys that are you know interesting throughout the you know throughout the pcl so it's one of those things where i'm always watching guys and if i there's a guy that i like they asked me to write a report i wrote a, i was one of the few guys or a couple guys that had a report in on Jarrell cotton when he was included in our trade so you know, I, I, I enjoy doing that part of it. and Whatever they ask of me, I, I still enjoy doing the scouting side of it. But I really enjoy my
0: job as a hitting coach here. Life as a hitting coach, I would think, is um, a catch twenty-two. There's always somebody you're trying to get going. You're never, you're, rarely are you gonna have all eleven or twelve guys firing on all cylinders.
1: Oh, I wish. I mean, <laughs> that would make for finally a good night's sleep. You know and. It's it's been it's it's been tough, but it's been fun. I mean, and I think the players understand that you know I'm in it with them and that I have the passion for. It because there's nights I, I tell these guys, I said, "You guys go home 0 for 4, I go home maybe 2 for 36." You know, <laughs> so I'm thinking about the at bats and constantly trying to get guys going. You know, this year's been up and down. We've had some good runs. We've had some young guys that are struggling, and uh, you know, as a whole, we we've been okay, but. It's not for the lack of work that these guys are putting in, but I'm also still trying to get them better. So sometimes you're just trying to think of answers or something just to give these guys that they can, they can relax a little bit and have that confidence again. Because I see it in them, and I'm with them in their at-bats. And I sit there, and I know there's guys struggling, and his four at-bats today might be a little grindy, but I just want to see how he goes in there and how he competes in the box, and that's all I can ask of these guys.
0: A couple of questions that I also asked Rick Rod about on the pitching side. What for you about all the different parts of the job what gets you the most jacked up is it seeing a guy have a quality at bat and maybe ripping a curveball when he struck out on a curveball the previous at bat or is it seeing something sort of mentally click like where is it we're like all right now now we're doing the job here this is this is why i'm doing this job it's good to see a guy that's been working on something and
1: actually take it into a game and actually have some success with it you know especially at this level you get a lot of guys that are they're here they're one step from the big league some of these guys have been up and down some of these guys are young it's hard for them to want to make any adjustments because they feel like that since they've gotten here they're that close and their way is the right way and i'm not really trying to change anybody yeah. but there's different things that they, whether it's the way they work whether it's a different approach or maybe a little tweak in mechanics that they got to do and for them to finally give you that that gratification of, okay, I'm going to take this into the game and I'm going to try to make this adjustment and see them get some success, that's what kind of jacks me up a little bit.
0: I would think there are moments, too, where you're watching a Matt Olson or a Pinder or something in the big leagues hit a pitch that used to give them trouble down here. That's got to be fun, too.
1: Oh, that's always fun. Just watching those guys in the big leagues is fun anyway. Anytime they have an at-bat and, you know, I get a chance to watch, I'm, I'm constantly on the, either on my computer, laptop, or whatever, just watching those guys. I mean, you know, those guys were an important part of my career, and I'm glad I was able to help them get to where they're at. And, you know, I call them not only as guys that I've, that I've coached, but, you know, those guys are my friends as well. And it's, it's fun to just watch them up there doing their thing you know doing their thing that they were doing down here in the big leagues and and and, you know those talk about competitive those guys are as competitive as it comes and watching those guys go up there and having fun and and having success in the big leagues I mean that does grab me a little bit and I can't help but put a smile or you know get a text from one of those guys just checking in on once in a while which they do which is awesome to hear you know so that that does have a lot as well that helps me get through some of these things.
0: Final question, you played in the Pacific Coast League at places like Edmonton and Vancouver, which are no longer in the league. You've now been the sounds hitting coach long enough that you've seen every ballpark in the league. So what are some favorite spots for you, either when you played, Uh, Or now as a hitting coach, and I I always people will ask me this, and as you well know, this is largely about food. This is largely about uh, how nice is the hotel, where is the hotel located, how nice is the ballpark. So a lot goes into these answers, but what are your favorite spots?
1: Well, considering we've had a couple good lunches here in El Paso, uh, unfortunately El Paso wasn't in the league when I was in here. So, I mean, I still have, I still like Oklahoma City. I mean, that's still one of my favorite places. Obviously, I opened that park. Rhino and I opened yeah. that park the first year that it opened, so which is was, which was awesome. But I just like the fact that the, the, just the, the way the stadium loads is downtown. You can walk. There's places to eat. I mean, that's still one of my favorites. Uh, you know, Des Moines, as old as the stadium is, is a sneaky little town, which is which is a cool little town. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do like El Paso. Uh, this is a great stadium. Memphis was always great. Um, Back when I played Vancouver, the city was unbelievable. The stadium we could have done without, but other than that, was great. And I still love Tacoma. I mean, yeah. Tacoma, the, the, the Northwest, the weather, the green, uh, they've done a great job there. So those are some of my favorites. And obviously, opening, opening sack, that always has a special place in my heart, too.
0: Good stuff, man. Appreciate it. As always, we'll catch up down the road. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. That sounds hitting coach Eric Martins on another edition of Rounding Third, the Nashville Sounds podcast. Thank you again for joining us. We remind you, as always, to continue to check out the podcast at nashvillesounds.com podcast. And we also would ask that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just search Nashville Sounds and Rounding Third, download the podcast, subscribe to it, give us a nice rating, and you can always hit us up on social media with a suggestion for the podcast or a future guest that you would like to hear from. We thank you for joining us. This is Jeff Hem from El Paso, Texas, and this has been another edition of Rounding Third. Thank you for listening to Rounding Third, the official podcast of the Nashville Sounds. For more information about Sounds Baseball and this podcast, visit nashvillesounds.com podcast.